Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to The Napoleon Assist. Today I'm delighted to say that I've got a bit of a treat for you and I'm bringing you a hotly anticipated interview taking a look at a cultural perspective. I'm very lucky to be joined by Claire Civita, lecturer at Bristol University and expert in French theatre during the French Revolution and Napoleonic era. She's also the author of Tragedy and Nation in the Age of Napoleon. Claire, it's great to have you on. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I'm, I'm very well, thank you for caring. Tell us a little bit about your research, first of all. So um, I'm a theatre historian, and what that means is I use theatre as a lens to study the way that governments and society work, or don't work, as that often turns out to be the case. Um, and I focus largely on the longer revolutionary period in France. So I started working out on the Napoleonic era, and now I really want to put those findings in context. And so I'm working from the end of the Ancien Regime, or the old regime in France, all the way through to the restoration of the monarchy after the fall of the empire. So theatre was a really important um, aspect of society during this period. And my students and I often say it's a bit like Netflix. Um, that, you know, in terms of today's society, like, yes, not every single member of society went to the theatre as not everyone has a Netflix account. But it's what people are discussing, what they're writing about, what they're reading about in the newspapers, what they're talking about in cafes and bars and, and with their friends. And so in that sense, kind of like, you know, it's got a dominant, it's playing a dominant role within culture at the time. And it's also important to remember that kind of theatre is not just a playtext. If we go to a library today and we look at historical theatre, we get all of these, um, these printed playtexts. So what I do in my research is I try and kind of bring all these different layers together and trace a play from its composition all the way through to its reception. So that goes through, you know, when the playwright first had the idea to write about this or when someone told them, you know, I think it'd be a good idea if you wrote about that. Um, whether that be their patron or a member of the state, then 
the way that it progresses towards the theatre, when it's read at the theatre, accepted by them, the progression through censorship, and then the rehearsal process, the actual performance, and then how it's received by both audiences and then also by the critics. So although you might be looking at just one particular play, there's actually lots of different layers to it. Um, and the other thing that really intrigues me about theatre at the time, especially during this period, is the role that it plays in terms of a social space. So as a member of an audience, you go to, go, you go to the theatre to see what's on stage. But because it's not that black box experience that we know today, um, the theatres remain lit, you could have a wander around, you could talk with your friends, you could have a look at what was going on. If you were rich, you'd probably be trying to do some showing off, you know, this is my newest dress or I've got this material. And it's also a very immersive um, experience. So there were lots of cabal at the time or members of the audience who supported a playwright or an actor or, or hated them and wanted them to fall. Um, so there's lots of booing going on, lots of applause going on at the same time. If we think of kind of like, you know, a modern day pantomime, that's one of the, the atmospheres that you're getting. And it's also a great place to have a laugh and talk about the current state of affairs. Um, and one of the things that I found in my re research again and again is that theatre is not just this kind of state-sanctioned propaganda. People are also using it as a space to discuss what's going on, to gather, to have a bit of a laugh, a little bit of subversion. But because there's lots of you around, in many senses, it's quite safe. As long as you don't draw out your sword, that would definitely get the police to notice you. As long as you don't start any fights or try and steal anything. But, you know, basically, as long as you don't trouble the order too much, you can have a good laugh about what was going on. I've instantly got so many questions that I want to ask about this. Um, uh, let, let's start with some of the basic ones. So why, why this period specifically? Why? Because you look at, what, 1789 to 1815? Yeah, roughly. essentially why that and not say a little bit earlier a little bit later um well i came to the napoleonic period um through theater rather than the other way around um so i'm dyslexic and i discovered french what we term french classical theater in my teens so plays generally written under the 13th through the 14th during the 17th century and i loved them i just loved how kind of complex but simple they were um, in French classical theatre, you've got like the unities of time, manner and space. They were nice and short and there was lots of space around the text. From a dyslexic point of view for me, that was lovely. Um, and I was just really intrigued by, by the history of these plays. And so, you know, I was like, right, I'd quite like to do a master's or a PhD. And I set around to, to doing lots of reading. And I realised that what interested me was not so much these plays in the context in which they were written, but their afterlives. And a really good moment to study that is obviously kind of the revolution and the Napoleonic period. Because the revolution essentially mutilates the canon and the works that we would now term classics. So it's all about novelty, renewing, purifying the repertoire, etc. About getting these Republican messages across. And then the Napoleonic period comes along and first of all tries to kind of heal some of this damage or like undo some of the damage. Um, and it tries to reinstall some sense of order. And it's in this order that I became really interested in, both in terms of what Napoleon was trying to do personally and also those around him. And I think also it's quite neglected compared to other aspects of Napoleonic history. So, you know, we know lots about the economy or about military history during this period, but what kind of people were laughing at, what they were going to watch, what people did in their spare time, 
um, is not necessarily something that we have tons and tons of books about. Um, so on the one hand, we get Napoleon's personal use of the theatre, so how he tries to shape his public image um, and to give himself a heritage using these plays, especially those in the 17th century that link him with Louis XIV. But then also because they're portraying stories from antiquity, it gives him an extra heritage um, all the way back to kind of ancient Greece and ancient Rome. And for him, this is quite useful because one of the things that he's, he often gets told or he's very worried about is the fact he's born on Corsica the year it came under French control. So he's French, he, he's kind of like head of the French army, but at the same time, he is not, um, he's not wholly French, or there's this worry that he's not wholly French. And his, um, his opponents often put the U back into Buonaparte, for example, to really kind of emphasize his Italian origins. So classical theatre in that sense is, that, is a really clever way for him to be like, I'm playing on this kind of semi-Italian heritage, but also kind of I'm wholly French and look at me kind of like creating this heritage through Louis XIV, etc. So that fascinated me. And um, he was also really keen to see new plays being written because it would be a way for him to show off both nationally and internationally um, and for a way for his reign to be commemorated. So again, it's what Louis XIV was doing. So he thinks that this is a good idea as well. So that's what Napoleon is doing. And then on the other hand, we get kind of the slightly more diffuse sense of, um, of what theatre is being used for by lots of people around him as well. And one of the things that comes up again and again is how useful theatre is as a means of mass education. So lots of people have missed out on their studies during the revolution because there are other things going on, um, or if they hadn't received an education beforehand because um, there wasn't the same there wasn't a national school system as we would know today. And um, one of the things that theatre allows the government to do is to teach the classics to the people, both French and by extension, the, those of the ancient world, because these plays are based on extracts of the Iliad or the Aeneid, for example. And it's also a way to teach French and European history. There are other plays about that. Um, and so kind of like if you're watching a play or if you're reading it, you're learning about these, you know, it's obviously written in a very distinct narrative. I have lots of debates with my sister, um, who's a classicist by training, about, you know, which version of Roman history we're talking about. Um, but it's a way of educating people. So both people reading these plays, attending the performances, but then also for the people reading the press at the time, because the press would have reviews and um, they would often give a synopsis of what happened in the play. So again, kind of like it's thinking about how all these strands come together. And so, yeah, that's essentially why I ended up focusing on the Napoleonic project. And then I was completely engrossed by everything that I read. And I was lucky enough to complete my PhD as part of the Arts and Humanities Research Council project on Napoleonic theatre, led by Professor Catherine Asprey at the University of Warwick. So that was obviously wonderful. There were lots of us over the space of several years working on Napoleonic theatre. And it was a really nice community um, to share ideas in. It sounds fantastic. Um, I mean, you've touched a little bit on my next question already, but you make the point sort of very early on in your book that we don't actually know a huge amount about theatre during the period. So kind of expand a little bit on what you said already, sort of set the scene for people, because I mean, certainly I'm quite ignorant about this, if, I, if I'm being honest, and I'm sure because it's not kind of widely known about, others will be kind of scratching their heads saying, so what's actually going on? So 
what, what's happening in the theatre world before 1789 and how does that change with the revolution? So pre-1789, um, the theatre world is pretty regulated in Paris. One of the things I'm trying to do with my current project is untangle ancien regime theatre in the provinces and how that's related to what's going on in Paris. Um, but you can come, out, come back to me in that in several years' time. <laughs> um, so thinking about Paris for the moment, there are three main theatres. There's firstly the opera, um, and still going on today. The Comédie Française, also still going on today. And the Comédie Italienne, which is largely for comic operas. And these three theatres hold the monopoly over their specific genre. No one else in Paris is allowed to perform these plays or plays that belong to them. Though there's, you know, if you look at the archives, there's lots of accusations that other theatres have. Um, but the theory is, you know, they have these monopolies. On the boulevard, there are some smaller and much more comic playhouses that perform pantomime or fair, fair theatre. And they are kept in a lower kind of oppressed position because of these monopolies. There's also censorship um, and a censorship system in place to make sure that nothing too undesirable reaches the stage. Um, and one of the famous examples of that is Beaumarchais' The Marriage of Figaro, for example, The Marriage de Figaro, and the number of hurdles he had to jump through and the number of people who saw his different manuscripts um, in order for that to reach the stage. And it's worth mentioning as well that another bone of contention is that unlike in Britain, French actors are excommunicated from the Catholic Church. So being an actor isn't necessarily, um, you know, it brings you fame and glory and celebrity, but if you're lucky, um, in terms of the church, it's a religiously um, dubious career path to, to follow. And actors have a real issue with that and their supporters do as well. Um, and there are also some quite funny last minute revivals or you know like if they had had the time to repent they would have repented and they would have become Catholic so they can be buried um but you know there is a real fear about the fact that you're excommunicated from the church if you decide to to be an actor by and large um and there are some big polemics about it and debates about it in the 18th century but by the time we get to the revolution theoretically this ought to be great for theatre but it turns out quite quickly that theatre poses a massive problem for those in charge and those trying to think about the limits of freedom and how a new society should work. One of the first times we see this hurdle kind of really coming up is with the Declaration of the Rights of Man and Citizen, which passed in August 1789. And Article 11 of this guarantees freedom of speech, um, but in practice, this free speech is not extended to theatres. So, you know, there is kind of like this kind of little get out clause that kind of says in like in cases like determined by the law. But, you know, at this point you're allowed to be, you know, publishing newspapers or pamphlets, etc. But the theatre is still subjected to censorship, um, which a lot of people find very unfair. Likewise, the French by and large are now citizens um, rather than being subjects, but actors are not recognised as citizens immediately in August 1789. They have to wait until December that year to be recognised as fully fledged members of, of French society by acquiring the status. That said, during the revolution, we do see a loosening up of what can be performed on the stage. So we start getting more plays about French history, about religion, for example. Those are two kind of topics that were very sensitive, given that 
the king had been in power through divine right. Um, but the real turning point comes in January 1791 with the Le Chapelier Law. And this law allows anyone to open a theatre as long as they declare themselves to the local authorities. So this is a watershed moment because those old monopolies are completely gone. Um, that's what people have been campaigning for. And there was a really explosion in the number of theatres popping up all over Paris. Um, and thus the number of plays being written as well. Um, and there are literally thousands and thousands of works from this decade alone. It's a massive explosion. So this part of the revolution is often seen as being a real heyday for theatre. And as ever, when we use the term heyday, it means that afterwards things weren't quite so good. So as I hinted at before, the revolutionaries discover that free speech and no censorship um, is a bit tricky to handle when it comes to theatre. And so as the revolution heats up, especially with the terror, we get the reintroduction of censorship. Um, throughout this period, actors, directors and playwrights are arrested for subversion. And this has an impact on the repertoire because we get all of a sudden we get lots of patriotic, in inverted commas, plays. Um, so for example, in 1794, because if you're not performing a play that's overtly patriotic by this point, um, you could be denounced and you know, people were worried for their lives. So things cool down slightly with the end of the terror but by that point, the government has learnt three really important lessons. The first is that theatre is a great vehicle for mass education, propaganda and promoting certain messages. The second is that too many theatres is not a good thing. It makes it very difficult to control and there's also worries about quality. And the third is that censorship is actually quite useful. So we see several of the people who'd been advocating for kind of the abolition of theatrical censorship in 1789 come 1797 being like, oh, actually, you know, we might be wrong about this. There needs to be some, some form of control. And it's these three strands that really become apparent in the final stage of the revolution, so the directory, and that continue under Napoleon as well. Yeah, I mean, that's, you've led exactly into where kind of my thought process is going with this, because Napoleon probably agreed with quite a lot of of the principles underpinning those those three things that you've just mentioned um because he, he did in a number of respects love his censorship and propaganda obviously with the newspapers they come down from what is it 80 down to four in paris um and i mean in fairness to him he had a phenomenal talent when it came to propaganda uh, whether it was kind of with his soul with, with his own soldiers or with civilians so how does that translate into theatre? Do we see Napoleon kind of continuing what happened under the revolution or does he have his own unique niche that he tries to occupy with it? I think he essentially draws on what worked well under the old regime of France and what worked well under the revolution and tries to combine the two together. Um, one of the things that I'm finding at the moment is it's really interesting to look at when and how we use term like, terms like censorship and propaganda. Um, and, yeah, and there's been a lot of talk about Napoleonic legend um, in France. Um, people quite often talk about this idea of like the black legend of Napoleon. <coughs> Sorry. The Légion Noir, for example. Um, and then he's been espoused by different political causes over the years. And then there have been other historical events like the Second Empire or World War II that impact how historians write about him. Um, Natalie Petitot has written brilliantly about this. 
um, looking at the course of Napoleonic historiography over time and the impacts of these different events. And um, David Bell has also um, recently pointed out that yes, the Napoleonic regime was a totalitarian state, but not in the 20th century sense of the word. Um, and also, you know, for people who were living during that time, those who could remember the revolution, um, the height of the terror, you had denunciations that could lead to kind of like the loss of your life. There were families ripped apart. Thousands of people were executed, thousands fled abroad. Under the old regime, you had the system of lettres de cachet, where if you were wealthy, a member of your family could just imprison you and with the king's authority, no trial, etc. So I think we need to temper slightly kind of like how we're using these words. In the same vein, censorship was an inherent part of the composition process um, from the early modern period up until 1906 in France, bar very brief respites. You know, in the UK, we had it until 1968, for example. Um, so it's how we use these words. And I think with censorship, one of the things that have come up again, and by this point, I've read hundreds, if not thousands of censorship reports, um, is that yes, it can be political. You know, there are moments when we don't want royalists on stage or we don't want this line because it could be seen to be making fun of this person in government or to give support to Louis XVIII supporters, for example. But at the same time, sometimes it's also about quality. You know, we get some censorship reports being like, this really just doesn't make the mark. If you want to perform it at the Comédie Française or the Opera, you know, it's just not, not high, of, of good enough quality. Um, by and large, it's fine for plays that aren't of that great quality to be performed in the minor theatres um, because they just assume that they will be flops and then people forget about them. So it's how censorship works depending on the theatre. Um, Napoleon sometimes gets involved um, when there's a play that, becomes, that comes to his attention in particular. Um, but by and large, one of the issues he has in terms of how he uses the theatre is that you can't really put him on stage um, as we might do with someone today, for example. So shortly after the 18th of Brumaire, there are a few plays that try and put Bonaparte on stage. I mean, obviously this is a big political event that's just happened. Theatre is one of the key ways of expressing oneself at the time. So it's no surprise that we start seeing the, these plays spring up. But um, one of the issues is you can't really living people on stage at the time. And this is whether they are a politician or whether they're a local tradesman, for example, there's this, this fear of putting local people, put, putting people on stage if they're still alive. And then there's the other problem, um, and this comes back to the actors being like, who could be great enough to represent Napoleon? You know, actors were often figures with local reputations, and so if one of them performs Bonaparte, if we're looking at these plays after, after the 18th of Brumaire or Napoleon later on in the regime, they're bringing all of this extra baggage and the other roles or the other incidents that they're known for to this portrayal of Napoleon. And that's really difficult for the state to control. So as a result of these factors, um, this type of circumstantial theatre portraying Bonaparte dies out very quickly. And what playwrights and theatres are left with is the regime of illusion. So what does that look like in practice then? So audiences at the time were very well trained to read in between the lines of plays and to look for allusions to the contemporary world. So even if you're watching something set 
set in ancient Rome, you can instantly draw parallels to what is going on in the modern world. Um, it's what people are trained to do when they're at the theatre. And in that sense, it didn't take very much to nudge them slightly further along in the state's intended direction. So one of the things Napoleon is really good at, which he doesn't get enough credit for, is choreography. He is brilliant at this. Um, so we have reports early on um, in the Napoleonic period that it's actually really difficult to see Napoleon in person. And there are two relatively easy places to get a glimpse of him. One is at the reviews, and the second is at the theatre. But Napoleon wouldn't just turn up at the beginning along with everyone else. Um, what he'd do is he'd wait for a particularly poignant moment of the play. Sometimes he had the script sent to him in advance and he'd really kind of like wait for the specific line and then he'd walk into his box. Obviously it was lit, the actors would stop on stage, the audience would turn to him, there'd be lots of applause, lots of congratulatory, he's finally arrived, etc. Lots of excitement. Then normally the actors would start that scene again and so that would really allow Napoleon to drive the particular message of that, that scene or that play home. Then, of course, this would be written up in the press. And so that image of a moment in a theatrical event, which, you know, might just have been seen by the 1,500 people or so there, is actually kind of spread out across France. So the Journal du Débat, later the Journal de l'Empire, has a circulation at one point that's estimated of 100,000 copies. So it's really important to remember how one thing happening in the theatre can actually end up being kind of a national um, report in that sense. Um, the other thing we can see Napoleon doing with his choreography is ordering specific plays. Um, so one example is Sina by Pierre Corneille, which is a 17th century tragedy, basically about mercy, but also being a great ruler. And Napoleon uses this and knows that the audiences are going to draw illusions um, and then parallels in between what's happening on stage and then Napoleon himself. So he's really kind of like relying on the audience to do some of the work here, but also putting in a fair amount of work from his side as well. That said, illusions are all well and good, but one of the issues is that you can't control them. Imagine you're Napoleon, you can do everything possible within your power, but you can't actually control what someone thinks. We see several plays that are really quite successful, like Duvers, Guillaume le Concorant, but because audiences don't quite understand the player's messages in the right way, um, or someone in the audience starts laughing, starts subverting, getting the wrong image of Napoleon and other people, you know, kind of like get the gist of this. Um, some of these plays are subsequently banned. So Duval is a famous example, and it's mentioned in, in the works quite often that, that do treat theatre history of this period. But from looking at playwright's personal correspondence um, and then their memoirs as well, we can see that kind of part of what playwrights wanted to do when they wrote a play was to kind of try and overstep the mark. They wanted to be slightly subversive um, and basically create a work that could have pro-Napoleonic meanings, definitely. You know, that's how you're going to get your patronage, it's how you're going to get your pension and your reward from the state. But then also, because you're reliant on the audience coming, you know, flocking along and paying for their tickets, you want a work that allows for a site of subversion, for people to come together, not for a political revolution, but just to have a good laugh and, and a nice cathartic moment, potentially some nostalgia bringing in, but essentially building something that people want to come and see and, and creating an experience you can't replicate elsewhere. 
Wow. So, so in a sense, it's kind of, is it too much to say? It's a bit like a sort of safety valve. It's an opportunity to let people let off a bit of steam. They kind of feel like they can go and have a joke. And so they don't feel like the, the censorship is quite as tight as it might actually have been. I think that's quite a good way of looking at, at it. There are police in theatres, um, you know, and there are lots of police reports. These pl- reports are then sent all the way up um, up the ranks, etc. So it's not an entirely free space. Obviously, if Napoleon is there as well, that's not a free space. But there's a lot of codified subversive behaviour going on. So I've read one police report, for example, where Napoleon's in attendance and two people who don't agree with him um, essentially put their hats on, which at this time is like a massive, massive insult. It's like the middle finger. Um, and turn their backs to him. You couldn't have done that in the street, but because the theatre is really populated and crowded in that sense, they can easily hide afterwards. So it allows you to have this moment of kind of, you know, I don't like you, I disagree with you, this moment of revolt, but within quite a safe environment. There are police present, they're looking at what people are doing, they're observing what people are doing, but by and large, you only really get arrested if you draw out your sword, attack someone, um, if you cause a massive ricks or you know kind of like if you were the leader of a miss a massive 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 misunderstanding that then leads to balls outside but apart from on those occasions you know the police will observe but there won't be that much um that much punishment and likewise for the playwrights in the sense that um okay there is self-censorship going on there is censorship going on some people's plays are totally banned but there when there's a play that reaches the stage that ends up being taken in a very anti-Napoleonic vein, the repercussions sometimes aren't that great. Sometimes it's literally just a verbal telling off or, you know, a slap on the hand. At other times they can be more severe and people feel that they need to go into self-exile. But the state actually doesn't, it relies more on people's own internal reactions to the threat of punishment rather than actually doling out punishment itself. Interesting. Um, you were talking about how Napoleon would kind of pitch up and, if you like, kind of crash the party um, yeah. with his, his grand uh, arrival. How do different parties react to that? Because you've got the actors who are mid-seed and they've just delivered a significant moment or a punchline or whatever it is, and Napoleon basically ruins it all and they have to go back to the start of the scene. But on the other hand, for the actors and also the playwrights, it's great publicity but then he's making it all about him and, and not them and their performance. So how, how do they kind of, how do people sort of react to that? If you're a playwright, Napoleon coming along is one of the best things that can happen to you because A, by and large, there's a rumour that he's going to turn up beforehand. So it means that it will be a very crowded performance. Lots of ticket sales, means lots of money. The actors like that too as well. Um, so in that sense, Napoleon turning up is very important. It also means that the work is endorsed by him um, and that will mean that people will buy more copies of it that, you know, quite potentially later down the line, there's a pension coming along, for example, which could be, you know, 6,000 francs. Um, You know, it's quite considerable money. And um, so in that sense, you know, it's seen as, as a very good thing. And the actors are quite used to being interrupted because it's not this black box experience. There's lots of stuff going on. Sometimes members of the public throw um, notes onto the stage or, you know, there's all this booing going on so that they have to repeat a line. Um, one of the subversive things that audience members can do, there's lots of 
rulings outlawing this is that if there's a particularly good line that has lots of resonances in the current situation, they ask for it to be repeated again and again and again. And the police are like, no, you've said it once, you're not allowed to do it again. And the audience is like, again, 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 again. So there is this interaction going on in between what's literally on stage and what's happening in the auditorium. Of course, not everyone was completely and utterly thrilled that Napoleon turned up, especially if you were part of the opposition. But it was just recognising that this was what was happening um, on that particular evening. You know, in terms of, for the opposition, there's an account from 1804. I think it's the Duke de Choiseul who has recently returned. Um, and he turns up at the theatre and all the royalists and members of the opposition kind of do the same thing that the pro-Napoleonic cabal would do for Napoleon. Um, and they, you know, kind of say, you know, this is a great person who's here. And he gets lots of attention from the audience. And the police are really astute in their reports about looking at which sections of the audience are looking at which prominent figures, for example. There's this whole observation game going on that's really important to them. Interesting. Can I go back to something that you mentioned earlier? Because you were talking about censorship reports and how some of the concerns are sort of legitimate concerns about quality and others are about kind of political messages and how that's going to make the state look. What's your sense of the balance between them? Is it quite a kind of even thing in terms of, look, we've got a, we've got a pile of rubbish plays coming through here we just don't want them at the main theatres or, or is the focus much more on trying to sort of see off um, potential sources of discontent so before a play got to censorship it, it had normally been read by the theatre and they'd accepted it the theatre obviously wants to perform good plays um, that you know a good new play will mean kind of like a, a huge financial success but then at the same time, they also need new copy. <laughs> um, so if there's a particular drought, they start accepting players that are perhaps not great, um, but they need to have novelty in order to entice audiences. Um, so by the time they come along to the censors, there are remarks about quality. As I said before, kind of like by and large in the minor theatres, they kind of let it go and they're like, well, it will be a flop anyway, so we don't need to worry about it that much. When it comes to the Comédie Française in particular, they are very kind of um, aware of how specific elements of the plays work, how they fit together, whether they obey kind of dramatic theory, for example. Um, and it's important to them that they really do fit the right rubric because, of course, they're being presented at the National Theatre. It's kind of like this emblem of the nation. So that's when the kind of aesthetic worries start coming in. Um, and this element of quality control. In terms of the political side of things, I mean, the way that I look at it at the moment is that in terms of the censorship reports, in terms of the ones that are totally banned, which actually isn't that many, it is normally on political grounds. In terms of modifications, um, you know, a common response would be, yeah, your play is authorised, but you need to make changes on like page five, six, 16, whatever. And the censors would highlight which lines needed to be changed um, on the actual manuscript itself. Um, then a lot of these are about kind of like potential political resonances or especially religious ones. Um, one of the things they get particularly worried about is um, like Roman priests potentially wearing Catholic robes. Likewise, soldiers not wearing exactly the right uniform. Um, so there's one point when um, a play is meant to be performing Austrian 
Um, sorry, meant to be performing French soldiers and they turn up in Austrian uh, costumes. Yeah, uh, that Ooh, doesn't go yeah. well. um, Or, you know, kind of like where white starts appearing, white is the colour of the, the royalty. Um, so if army officers as characters on stage start appearing in white, um, at one point the minister for war gets involved and he's like, uh, this is not a legitimate <laughs> army costume, not happening. Um, so there's kind of like, they're on the lookout for things that could potentially go wrong. But one of the things they're also really concerned about, and this in a way comes back to the political side of it, that yes, I mean, overt references to the royalist cause are going to be removed. But what they're also looking for is essentially debatable points, things that are going to set the audience off. You know, one side of the audience will be massively pro this, one side of the audience will be massively against it. And that's when you can start getting troubles related to, to law and order. And that's essentially what the censors are trying to avoid at the most, um, the most, you know, it's this idea that audiences need to behave well, like, yes, they can have a little laugh here and they can have some subversion here, but essentially this shouldn't trouble what's called l'ordre social. Um, you know, society needs to be maintained. And there's, this is really important to them, especially after the revolution. The revolution is seen as this moment when everything got out of control and um, you kind of like this might have been because of the language that we were using or the political sentiments at the time. So essentially they don't want to wake any of this up. And we see this language in the reports, you know, kind of like we don't want to réveille um, this element of public opinion or kind of like give ideas um, to people about religious or political fanaticism. So there's almost this kind of using censorship to make sure the play conforms to social order and that it's not going to set off any big fights or debates. Interesting. And, and what about the people who are actually watching these? Because you've mentioned how these, these are big occasions, but they're also, in many cases, we're talking about the, the big theatres, which are going to be the most expensive institutions as opposed to the ones where the, the lower quality plays are going to appear. So is it something where you have the 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 best plays are only consumed by the wealthy do you see kind of rip-off versions and parodies happening elsewhere what what's the what's the consumership like if you sort of trying to say yeah so if we're looking at the kind of the main theatres in Paris so one of the things that Napoleon does is he reintroduces these monopolies um this time there are four theatres four main theatres and then there are four kind of secondary theatres come 1807 um and um the tickets for the for the Grand Théâtre, the main theatres, were quite expensive. But at the same time, there were lots of cheaper places. Um, and there are numerous documents that show that there was a habit of leaving convenient doors open, um, allowing people to come in without paying. Um, you know, kind of like there's so many letters being like, we told you to shut the door. Um, and there's also practice at the time of actors or playwrights giving out free tickets to their supporters, to their cabal so that they could go and cheer on or boo someone down um, on for a specific play on a specific evening. So this is a great pastime of students, according to police records. Um, lots of very kind of enraged and active students. Um, the boxes of the theatre are normally occupied by the upper classes um, and high civil servants. Um, there's this idea, especially outside of Paris, that theatres need to be attracting the officer class, the armed forces. Um, and the high civil servants who have been sent um, on a mission to a particular area of France. 
Um, but it's worth remembering that those in the upper classes would also bring their servants along with them. So that particular individual is not paying for their specific ticket, but they're going along as part of an, um, an entourage in that sense. Um, and then there are people who work in the theatre themselves. And from contemporary um, sources, we can see that a lot of those people working backstage or even who were musicians um, in the orchestra in the pit, for example, were illiterate, so they use crosses to sign their, um, to sign their names. There's also lots of police orders about lemonade sellers. Um, I don't know whether there's a particular thing that they, they had a massive issue with. Um, and prostitutes, um, especially about where prostitutes are and aren't allowed to stand. Um, they get very annoyed when they turn up in the boxes. So even within one theatre, you get a real cross-section of society in that sense. Um, and it's worth remembering as well that people might go to more than one theatre in, in one particular evening. So you could go to kind of like the big theatres for the main event, the first play that evening, and then at halftime, um, or the interval, um, you would then pop along to one of the more minor theatres um, and see something going on there as well. So it's kind of, you know, people are moving about and we need to remember this mobility in that sense. Um, the authorities were also aware of how useful theatre was and there were free performances as well. So Curtis performances to mark certain events, victories, national celebrations. And at this point, anyone could go. Um, likewise, the performances weren't just kept to the auditorium. So as I spoke about Napoleon earlier, Critics would write about these and their accounts would appear in newspapers. They'd be appear in the national press and sometimes they were reprinted in the local press as well. So that even if you were in Marseille or Bordeaux, you had an idea of what was going on in the major theatres of the capital. So in terms of trying to tap into popular opinion during this period, is your sense that a play will do well in a theatre because it taps into how the public wants to think about particular issues when it has a particular kind of spin on it? Or is there something else at play? I think there are particular themes um, that come back again and again that the public clearly love. So one of the historical characters they love to see on the stage is Henry IV. You know, kind of like the great king of France, man of the people, you know, he ate his pool, pool etc. Um, obviously, there's been some rewriting of his history, but if you have a play with Henry IV in, you can be guaranteed that it will be a massive success. Um, they love it. But at the same time, the Napoleonic regime is like, um, he's a king and, um, you know, he has all the support and he's a Bourbon and, you know, the one in exile is also a Bourbon. Um, so there are moments when they try and allow Henry IV to come to the stage and they test this out at the opera and at the Comédie Française. And then they decide it's not quite the moment um, to, to bring Henry IV back. Um, so there's specific figures like that who have a really popular following. Um, then there are certain elements of um, a kind of like the greats of Western literature that people always like hearing about again and again. So like Hector, um, with my French pronunciation, or Hector, um, to use the English one, um, you know, this idea of this great warrior who is fatally brought down by a flaw, you know, kind of like thinking about what's going on with the military at the time, um, the fact that you can be the greatest of warriors, but finally you, you do lose is quite, um, is very relevant to a lot of people. And we see people working through 
themes of loss um, through plays as well. Um, whether this be kind of like by hand, by annotating copies, or going to the theatre and really kind of like allowing using theatre as a space for catharsis. Um, there's a lot of satire. There's a lot of slapstick. It's funny. Um, that's at the other end of the spectrum. But, you know, kind of like there are stock characters that appear again and again and again. So Kedah said is one. And um, you quite often get parodies of the new major hits, but using these stock figures like Kedah said. Um, Harlequin comes up again and again, for example. So there are definite kind of like stock characters that are known to get an audience going. Um, but at the same time, the state's a bit wary about what happens if they become too eager to see a specific character. So what changes in 1815 then? Do you see a return to sort of the pre-revolutionary themes and the ways of doing things or do tragedies kind of have a role to play in coming to terms with France's defeat? Because the, the nation kind of has to have a reckoning with itself in terms of those who were very pro Bonaparte and enjoyed the glory of empire, particularly the soldiery, and those who, particularly in 1815, were a bit kind of apathetic about Napoleon's return and, and weren't really fussed one way or the other. So does that kind of play out within theatre or, or are there other issues at play? It does play out within, within the theatre. Um, so I will come back to something I was literally reading just before coming to this, the, the Bibliothèque Nationale, um, which is about Arnaud's Germanicus, but we can speak about that in a minute. Um, but essentially, come 1815, I mean, there's 1814 and there's 1815. So we get the first restoration and it's like, yeah, we can perform all these plays that have be banned for a while. You know, massive celebration about royalty. You know, France had, had nearly two centuries of, of successful theatre written under monarchs. There's a lot of monarch praising going on. Um, so we see a lot of these plays coming back again. Um, circumstantial plays as well. Then obviously Napoleon comes back and they're like, oh, wait a sec. And then they bring out all of them like major hits in the Napoleonic, um, in Napoleonic period. So all of a sudden you get kind of like plays written for these specific regimes, but then also the pre-existing plays that those regimes decide to stage. Um, so Tartuffe makes a big comeback um, under Louis the Eighteenth, for example. It's all about hypocrisy and kind of like um, the omnipotent prince coming to kind of rectify everything. Obviously that was like really great in 1814, not great during the Hundred Days. Um, and then with the second restoration in 1815, again, we see kind of a, a wave of circumstantial plays. Um, it gets tied into Louis the 18th Saint Day as well. Then in 1816, there's a Henry IV statue that's, um, that's put back up again after the revolution. So we get loads of Henry IV plays that we know that everyone's gonna love. Um, so in that sense, kind of, you know, there are definite trends that, that we can trace. One of the issues for the restoration government is that it's not the old regime anymore. Um, you know, dramatic censorship continues. So theoretically, um, public censorship for published material is abolished in 1814. Um, and come 1816, basically, it's only submitted to censorship if it's under 20 or 30 pages. There's a little bit of debate about that. Um, but theatre censorship remains. And so the restoration government is still controlling what gets to the stage. And the general consensus from what I've read at the moment is it's fine for that censorship to continue because Napoleon did it. Um, it's a bit of a gray area, but you know, he was the one who introduced it. So 
let's carry on. Um, and let's not talk about it too much. But the major difference now is that if a play is censored, by and large, the authors can publish it um, and show kind of like the censorship that's going on and write about it as well. Um, in terms of things that become less desirable, um, making fun of monarchs um, is, is not a great idea. Um, likewise, um, representing the church, making fun of religion, um, you've got the king who's back, um, is definitely off the cards, so being a massive hallmark of revolutionary theatre. Um, Napoleon starts kind of dampening it, and then obviously with the restoration that completely goes. Um, it's also not okay really to talk about Napoleon until he dies. Um, there's this anxiety that, yes, he's on St Helena, but what happens if he's come back, comes back? Because he came back last time. Um, so during the first years of the restoration, um, plays that could have any potential link to Napoleon are, um, well, in a sense, is try to suppress them. Um, if it turns out, and this is where I can come back to Germanicus, um, that a play ends up having Napoleonic illusions, um, then that's quite often um, shut down. So one of the things we see with Germanicus is that it's a play about ancient history written by Arnaud. Arnaud had been um, a friend of Napoleon, he'd been in his administration, um, he'd been a member of the equivalent of the Académie Française at, at the time, you know, he was a really kind of like high prominent figure. And then he's exiled with the restoration when they come back again. Um, and even though he's exiled, his tragedy is allowed to be performed. And the play itself apparently has nothing to do with Napoleon whatsoever. Like there are no illusions that could be potentially possible to him. But because of who the playwright is, um, the audience really kind of like get hold of this. And so you get the Bonapartist fraction of the audience turning up and they are wearing white waistcoats and black scarves. And then you get kind of like the ultra royalists turning up and they are wearing black waistcoats and white scarves as a way of kind of basically having um, you know, a very visual confrontation and it just ends up being this massive ball. And the performances of Germanicus are banned thereafter just for the reasons of, of social order. Um, you know, it's a threat to public health and safety. The other thing that we see during the restoration um, that becomes really problematic that hadn't been problematic in the same sense beforehand is the representation of the English. So obviously there's the occupation going on, um, the Allied forces are there in that sense. Um, and whereas beforehand it was fine to do a bit of English bashing, it's the, you know, the neighbours, etc. Um, kind of people would laugh at it fairly innocently. Um, this kind of like innocent laughter is definitely suppressed. Likewise, um, more serious dramas that start to have English characters or or potentially evil English characters um, are suppressed. Um, so obviously because it's not a good idea to insult or mock your occupier, new plays um, aren't allowed to really mention this. If there's a way of changing a character or taking out a few lines, then that's what the censors would recommend. Otherwise it's not being performed. Likewise, established classics like Voltaire's Tancred um, had to be removed from the repertoire because it painted an unfavorable image of the English. So that's something that's new that comes along with the restoration. Do you see a similar kind of thing for the Austrians, the Prussians, the Russians, or 
is it specifically the English because there is that tradition of of conflict with the English and kind of that mutual bashing between the nations and jokes at each other's expense? So one of the issues about the Austrians is how linked they are with the French monarchy. So obviously Marie Antoinette, Louis the Sixteenth, um, she was Austrian. Um, then obviously during the Napoleonic Wars, Austria was a major part of the coalitions. Um, so there's an anxiety around representing Austrians on stage. Um, one of the things that we see with the censorship reports for both the Napoleonic era and the Restoration era is essentially it's not too nice to bash anyone of any particular nationality. Um, you know, you've still got kind of ambassadors um, around in Paris, for example, they might be present. Um, and especially after the revolution, there's this idea of kind of a little bit um, is fine, but by and large treat people how you'd like to be treated. Um, what does change though is how different theatrical traditions are perceived. So um, for a long time, French theatre had been understood by the French as being like the preeminent form in Europe. Um, and they enjoyed significant cultural hegemony in their eyes at least, um, over say, for example, the German traditions. Um, they thought that Shakespeare was barbarian, so that's fine. Um, and um, you start to see this being contested by the end of the empire and then with the first year of the restoration, first years of the restoration. And that's really interesting because it's combined with a military invasion. So you essentially have like a theoretical and a military invasion at the same time, which is a real kind of like challenge to people's identities. And, you know, we thought for a long time that we were kind of like the victors and all of this, but actually that's not the case. And all of a sudden there are these foreign ideas coming in that challenge what, how we understand theatre essentially. Um, so Madame de Stair does this with Delenman, for example, but there are other publications um, that really suggest kind of reforming French theatre essentially to make it much more ad adapted for the people, for entertainment, to talk more about real life essentially, um, rather than stuff that happened in the ancient world or in far off times, etc. So we can look at kind of like the theoretical worries um, and then in terms of kind of like the representations of different nationalities and people have drawn kind of like large or done like the broad brushwork for this. But one of the things I find really interesting to do is to look at the way that specific playwrights were received um, and how they were adapted um, or not, for example. And I've been working on Kotzebue with Annelie Sentris um, at Oxford recently um, and looking at all the different translations that there are of his plays. So, you know, technically it's in German, but it's translated into French, English, Russian, Dutch, Swedish, Danish, Italian, Spanish. I think there's all of them that we found at the moment. Um, and they're massive successes with audiences. Likewise, the French playwright Pixigor is staged in London. Um, and again, in the German lands, um, Picard is another playwright who is adapted by Ifland, like one of the great German actors at the time, who's often linked with this kind of revival of German theatre um, and this kind of like project of, of making a national German theatre. But he's adapting French plays. So if we look 
more at the nitty gritty and kind of what's being performed and, and individual plays and playwrights, we can see that there's perhaps slightly more encounter than we might otherwise have first thought. So do you see much exporting of French theatre, particularly when you've got areas of Napoleon's empire beyond the sort of natural borders of France, as it was described, um, occupation of sections of Germany, Italy and so on. Do you see Europe kind of responding to French influences theatrically or, or not? So it's important to add in this that there is a history of French theatre in princely courts in Europe um, during the 18th century, for example. Um, so, you know, kind of like French, French theatre is performed in St. Petersburg, it's performed in Vienna. Um, there are also touring French troops. So I've looked at the ones in Hamburg recently, um, for example. Um, a lot of, yeah, the princely courts have had French troops as well as kind of like their own, their own national ones. Um, you know, it wasn't just French troops um, in St. Petersburg and Moscow, for example. I think there were German actors as well. Um, so it wasn't something that was necessarily kind of like brought with the advance of the Republic and then with the empire kind of instilled in people in that sense. Like there was a prehistory of it. But by the end of the 18th century, essentially this taste for French theatre had been on the wane and a lot of these kind of theatres were starting to shut down. Um, you get the creation of like national German theatres as well, which kind of like challenges this. Then with the revolution, um, especially in Brussels, they discover that it's a really useful way of kind of like converting people. Um, in the German lands, they think it's going to be a brilliant way to teach them French and about French like, morals and behaviour and, and ideas about society. Um, on the ground, language ends up being a massive problem. Um, you know, you can kind of like give loads of money to these French companies and say, come and look at how wonderful French theatre is. But if they'd rather go to watch the German theatre over the road and understand everything that's going on, they're going to go and do that. Um, so at one point, they kind of like try and limit the number of performances for the German companies. Likewise, in Italy, obviously there's a long, um, in the Italian states, there's a long history of theatre um, there and you still get Italian performances, but then you also get French troops um, French companies arriving to give performances. Part of this is to entertain the civil servants who are there and the officers who are there on behalf of France, but another part of it is meant to be teaching like language um, and, yeah, and how the French think essentially to the local inhabitants. And it's not a particularly successful operation. It's really interesting to look at and how kind of like the state thought it would work. But in practice, people would rather go and watch something that's written in their own language than go and listen to something that's in a foreign language. But at the same time, in thinking about the people who were stationed there on behalf of France, it's a really important way to make them feel connected to what's going on in Paris. Claire, this has been so interesting. I could talk to you for another three hours on all of this. There's there's so much that, that I still want to know, but I've learned a huge amount. I know the listeners will have too. Can you just remind us again about your book and where people can get it? Yeah, so um, it was published in May 2020 with Oxford University Studies in the Enlightenment series um, from Liverpool University Press. And it's called Tragedy and Nation in the Age of Napoleon. Fantastic. Definitely one for people's wish list. Uh, and thank you so much for joining me. This has been absolutely brilliant. Thank you. That was the theatre historian Claire Civita joining me to discuss theatre and censorship in Napoleonic France. You can follow Claire on Twitter at Claire Civita. Claire is spelt C-L-A-R-E. So there's no I in there. Civita, S 
I-V-I-T-E-R. And as you've just heard, her book on French theatre, which I thoroughly recommend, is available to order online now. If you have any questions and comments, you can always join the discussion online, either via Twitter. You've heard Claire's details already. You can find me at History, or you can get involved at www.thenapoleonicwars.net forward slash forum, where you'll also find a host of threads, discussions and resources relating to the period posted by followers from across the globe. If you're enjoying The Napoleonicists and have a couple of seconds to spare, it would be great if you could give us a review on your favourite podcast platform, even if it's just by clicking the number of stars that you'd give us. And thank you to everyone who supports this content with likes, retweets, Facebook shares, and through word of mouth. Your support honestly means the world. The Napoleon Assist will return in a fortnight, but until then, I'm Zach White. This has been The Napoleon Assist, featuring Claire Civiter. Take care, my friends. Stay safe. And as always, thank you for listening. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.